All right, as you know, we're in Genesis chapter 36 through 38, and you're going to say, Cheryl, what did you possibly get out of the lineage of, of, of um, Esau and of this situation with Jacob being sold and the situation with Judah? How do you bring it all together? I want to tell you what brings all three chapters together. It's sanctification. Because what we see in these three chapters is the process of sanctification. Too often we think that sanctification is a one-off. You know, I prayed, I'm a Christian now, I should always be good, I should always have the right attitude. And we tend to condemn ourselves when we're afraid or we're grumpy or we have the wrong attitude, not realizing that God is using those things to work the process of sanctification in us. You see, sanctification is a, is a two-step process. It is God working out of us that he might work himself into us. To be sanctified is to be set apart or made holy. But the vessels in the temple, they were sanctified. They were set apart that God might use them for his utmost purposes. So when we're set apart, it's not just so we can be isolated, but we are set apart for his purposes, for his special purposes. You know, no offense, but I've got this silver spoon that I got from my mother and it used to belong um, to her. Her father gave it to her when she was first married. Um, It's called first love. It's so sweet. But This special spoon, I love it. It's my casserole spoon. But I would not use that for dog food ever. I wouldn't use it to go plant something in the backyard. It's set apart. It's for casseroles only. And it's my special spoon. Or I will admit, I'll use it for a fruit salad because it's so pretty. But sanctification is the special work of God that changes our identity and our substance from being identified by our sin, our past, our weaknesses and failures, or our connection to this material world. Instead, it changes our identity to being about the work of God in our life, the work of God on our life, the work of God for our life, and our relationship to him. Paul points out the reality of sanctification in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. God doesn't choose us on the basis of what we are or what we were, but he chooses us by his spirit. Sanctification is the process by which God brings us to the end of ourselves, washes us, justifies us by faith through the work of Jesus Christ, places his spirit in us to empower us to do things his way and not our own. It is God's claiming of us engraving of us with his law and his conforming us to look more like his children than the children of this world. 
How does he sanctify us? Well, as I said, it's a process. And often, as we're going to see in these three chapters, it comes by showing us ourselves, showing those places that we need sanctification, showing us what is inside of us that is displeasing to God. According to Philippians 2.13, God is working on us, with us, and in us to will and to do of his own good pleasure. In other words, God is working his will into our hearts so that we will want his will, that we will desire his will. We have so many wrong ideas about sanctification. Again, often we think it's automatic holiness. You know, well, I said this, I should be holy. And often people are shocked to find a failure or bad attitude resident in them. Like, no, 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 I can't have that. I've been sanctified. You can still have it. You've got residual effects of sin and God is just bringing it to the surface. We often resist admitting or confessing or acknowledging our sin. And sometimes we are so condemned over our sin that we are almost paralyzed to do anything about it. But none of these attitudes are conducive or help us further along in the sanctification process. When Brian and I were living in Huntington Beach, we would often go to my parents' house for dinner. My parents lived in Costa Mesa at the time. And I remember I had my oldest daughter and I was pregnant with our, our son, Char. And we were sitting at the kitchen counter eating dinner with my parents and the subject of two like absolutely gorgeous, beautiful women, young women who attended this church came up. And out of my mouth came something so critical. Uh, so can I just say ugly? Ugly. And as I was saying it, I looked over and my dad had this, this look of just sadness of just being grieved and disappointed and he just looked at me and I was I was crestfallen by that look I hadn't seen my dad ever look at me that way and I could feel the disappointment and I remember I, I said to him you know what what why are you looking at me like that and he said this he said I just never thought I'd hear you talk like that Oh my goodness, I can still hear him see, say it. I can still see his face. And I remember I was so convicted. I knew that those things were wrong to say. I felt it, but I felt his grief for me. You know, he didn't say, shame on you, shouldn't say that. No, it was his grief that I would think that way or talk that way that began just to convict me. I remember leaving, being in the car with Brian, and I was obsessed with this. Like, Brian, can you believe my dad looked at me? Can you believe my dad thought I was jealous? Can you believe my dad said that to me? You know, and he just doesn't know women. He doesn't know what I know. He doesn't see what I see. And Brian was just quiet, just quiet, almost all of the right. And then he said this, Cheryl, why don't you just admit you're jealous? Jealous? No way. I was not jealous. Jealous is the stepmother in Cinderella. Jealous is Maleficent in Sleeping Beauty. Jealous is Snow White's stepmother. Me? No. I am just exercising my right as a 
godly person to say what I see or where people should improve. But you know what? Nobody was buying that. Nobody. So I went into the house. I was upset with Brian now because he had the audacity to say I might be jealous. And I went in and I threw myself on my knees and I cried out to God. And my prayer was more like, Lord, can you believe what people are saying about me? Can you believe this? And I remember the spirit of God just overwhelmed me and said, Cheryl, you are jealous. And it's a grief to me. It grieves my heart more than it even grieves your father's heart. And I, at first I was like, no, not you too. But then I began to give myself to the Lord. I got up. I went to Brian and I said, you're right, I'm jealous. I hate it in me. I don't know what to do. Somehow I had the idea that if I admitted I was jealous, Brian would be like, okay, great. You're disqualified for being my wife. You're disqualified. But instead he said, why don't you just repent? Why don't you just confess it and give it to God? And so I said, well, will you do it with me? So together we prayed and I confessed my jealousy and I gave it all to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? I felt the Lord forgive me. I could feel him forgive me and begin to wash my heart from that propensity, from that place. Um, Just a few weeks later, I saw both of those young women and I love them. I love them thoroughly. And my heart was now to find the best. And what could I commend in these women. How could I show them that they were loved and accepted and wanted? My whole perspective, my whole attitude have been changed simply by confessing my sin before the Lord and being cleansed and washed. I'm not saying that I haven't been jealous since then, but let me say this. I recognize jealousy now when it rears its head. And you know what I do with it? I present it to the Lord and say, "Mm -mm, I don't want this in my heart. I don't want this in my life. Lord, I recognize for what it is. And I pray that you would take authority over that area in my heart and make it yours. You see, I want to work jealousy out and the love of Christ in. I want my whole body and soul and mind and heart to be under the authority of Jesus Christ. God's way of sanctifying us is often to allow us to come to the end of ourselves. He often lets us act on our emotions. He lets us go our own way and experience the consequences and frustrations of it. What better way to work it out of us? Because he wants us. He wants us to want his will. He wants us to want his way above our own. And he allows us to to have our own way in order that we might recognize the ugliness, confess it before him, our own unrighteousness, and seek his ways, his will, and his power over us and in us to do his will. Sanctification is God's way of bringing our lives and the lives of those around us under his authority. This process is clearly seen in the lives of Jacob and his sons. Let's begin with Genesis 35. 
I just want to remind you that that's when Jacob began to separate himself. He took all the idols away from his family. He buried them under the terebinth tree. They externally purified themselves. They even changed their garments. They acknowledged God rehearsing his promises and they built an altar to him. So here's an outward sanctification. But as we're going to realize, there's still corruption going on in the heart. There's still... Uh, they're still separated from God by their hearts. Jacob's family was far from being right with God. There was so much that was needed to get the corruption out. God wanted to create a people that could be entrusted with his promises, his covenant, and his son, the Messiah. So firstly, there had to be a separation from Esau. Holiness and sanctification always implies a separation. This is a separate people, a separate lifestyle. Sanctification is the working of separating us from not only the world, but the way of the world, the priorities of the world. Esau had married the wives he took. And his offspring reflected that taking, Genesis 36. They moved to the mountains of Seir. They became known as the Edomites. The Amalekites, who had later attacked the children of Israel in Exodus 17, came from the family of Esau. Immediately, the Edomites began to appoint a dynasty and be ruled by kings. Even as God separated Jacob's clan from Laban, then from the men of Shechem, he needed to separate them from their cousins. Though Esau was also a son of Isaac, Esau had chosen the way of the Canaanites and Canaanite wives. This was not what God had for the sons of Israel. In chapter 37, God begins to reveal the nature or heart of the sons of Israel. This is the second step in sanctification. It's revelation. The sons of Israel have hatred lurking in their heart. Let me say this. Hatred is never safe. It is never safe. If you have an ounce of hatred, renounce it. You know, just confess it and be cleansed of it. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 22, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka or worthless one, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. So I want you to see the progression. One is, is anger without a cause. That puts you in danger of the judgment. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Raka, or you're worthless, puts you in danger of the counsel. You see, when you begin to consider somebody as worthless, you demean them, you dehumanize them, you are very close to murder. And then you fool means life would be better without you. This is the inception of murder. Murder begins in the heart with hatred, devaluation. Three times in Genesis 37, we're told that Joseph's brothers hated Joseph. Verses 4, verses 5, verses 8. The Hebrew word here denotes a thorough hatred, or they utterly hated him. They hated him as much as anyone could hate 
anyone. In verse 4 of chapter 37, we learn that they could not even speak peaceably to him. In other words, they couldn't say one nice thing or communicate without derision in their tone or words. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Hatred seeped out into all of their communication. Our sin will be evidenced in the way we talk. It will be evidenced in the subjects that we wanna talk about, what we say. It will be evidenced in how we say, what we want to say in the tone we use and how often we say it. You know, when people hate, they have to bring that person or that situation into every conversation. There's an obsession that happens. This hatred leads to murderous intent. The brothers see Joseph coming toward them and they begin to conspire together to kill Joseph and they throw him in a pit. There are other sins that must be revealed in Jacob's family besides just this murder in the hearts of Jacob's sons. Jacob does not fare much better. He prefers Joseph. His preference of Joseph over his other sons is obvious. It's unkind, it's divisive, and it's emotionally unhealthy. Remember, he dressed Joseph better than the others. Joseph wore a tunic of many colors designating Joseph as the favored of Jacob, designating Joseph as the most loved. Um, commentators say this might have been to designate Joseph as the new patriarch. In other words, Joseph in that coat of many colors is reminding Reuben of his failure and of his sin. You're not the patriarch. Joseph, who was second to the youngest, is now the patriarch. He's Reuben's replacement. But Jacob might have done this to protect Joseph. Like, don't touch Joseph. He's the one in charge. He's the patriarch. Jacob is unaware of the atmosphere in his own home. He is unaware of how he is setting up Joseph for rejection. Unaware of just how dangerous his other sons are. This is seen in the fact that he sends Joseph out alone, unprotected, to check on his brothers and livestock. But let me say this, Joseph at this point in his life is not the most likable character. He tattles on his half-brothers. You know, I know because I was a tattletale. Being a tattletale does not make you popular. The, he tattled on the sons of the concubines, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Don't you think that they already in some point felt like second-class citizens? I mean, they were the sons of the concubines, not even of Leah or Rachel. Then Joseph shares his dreams with his brothers. In other words, Joseph is either unaware of his brother's feelings towards him, or he's saying, hey, you guys might hate me, but someday you're going to bow. God showed me in a dream. Um, this is in verses 7 through 9 of chapter 37. My sheave is better than your sheave. Everyone, the stars, the moon, they're all going to bow down to me. Perhaps Joseph is just too sheltered. Maybe he's just naive and doesn't understand just how dangerous the atmosphere is. At this point, Joseph has much to learn about human nature. 
He is no more ready to lead or to be a patriarch or to be somebody in charge at this point. He's untried. He's untested. He's insensitive. He, he's arrogant. He wears his coat in front of his brothers. This does not endear him to his brothers. In fact, it infuriates them. But perhaps the feelings of dislike are mutual. Perhaps the feelings that were between Leah and Rachel have transferred down to their sons. Joseph appears to have a sense of entitlement, even arrogance. God lets men have their way, as we see in this story. We often ask, why did God allow it? Why did God allow Joseph to go alone to see his brothers? Why did God allow Joseph's brothers to throw him into a pit? Why? If God never allowed evil to manifest itself, we would be in denial of its existence. It's hard for us to believe in what we have not seen and have not experienced. If God did not allow it, he would be in violation of our free will. God's righteousness requires that men be allowed to exercise their free will. And in doing so, they prove what is in their heart and what is in their nature. So God allows the evil, the evil that is in the hearts of the sons of Jacob to reveal itself. The murder in the heart of Joseph's brother turns into a plan. And the plan turns into action. When they see Joseph approaching, they conspire. They call him the dreamer. The dreamer. In this way, they demean and dehumanize him. He's not a person. He's a dreamer. It's, it's like the raka. It's like the you fool. That this is all he does. He dreams. He tattles. He, he doesn't have substance. They plan to kill him. They throw him in a waterless pit. They strip him of his tunic of many colors. They are so callous that when they do this, while Joseph is in the pit, they sit down to eat. That is so callous. Who can eat in the presence of someone who is pleading and suffering? In Genesis 42, 21, we learn that they heard him pleading. It says, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we refused to hear him. You know, it's hard enough for me to eat when my dog Barnabas has his head on my lap, looks at me with those soulful eyes and wants my food. In fact, last night I shared most of my hamburger with Barnabas. But these men, they sit down and eat. They eat while they're brother is hungry, stripped of his tunic, probably cold, and in a waterless pit with no ability to get out on his own. Reuben tells them, do not shed his blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Genesis 37, 22. But Reuben has lost the authority over his brother's. Some say that he was pleading for Joseph 
because he wanted to save Joseph from the brothers and thereby get back into Jacob, his father's good graces, because he could say, look, I was able to stop these men from doing the evil that was in their heart. I saved Joseph, so I should be the patriarch again. But Reuben was called away for something. And in his absence, it's Judah who suggests that they sell him for profit to the Midianite traders, the Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt. So they pull Joseph out of the pit. They sell him for 30 shekels. Their cruelty is not just against Joseph, but against Jacob. They are in rebellion to their father's will. They know that Joseph is loved by Jacob. They know that Jacob has designated Joseph to be the patriarch over his brothers. So in selling Joseph, they are in rebellion to their father's will. They don't care about what their father wants or their father's emotional state. They are callous. They kill a baby goat. They dip Joseph's tunic in it and they present it to their father. And they say, we found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? How sadistic is that? They don't concoct a story to let Jacob down easy. Wouldn't it be better to say, oh, we found this. We hope he's okay. No, they're, they're leaving it to Jacob's imagination so that Jacob will blame himself for whatever happened to Joseph. They are spectators to Jacob's grief. He will not eat. He cannot be comforted. He spends his day in mourning and weeping. So this is the beginning of the sanctification. First, they're separated. Now they're beginning to see the consequences, what's really in their heart, their own callousness, their own hatred. Chapter 38, the sanctification continues as God begins to work on Judah. God is going to clean Judah's house. Judah had married a Canaanite, much like his uncle Esau, following after his uncle Esau rather than after his father. Then he takes a wife for his eldest son. The wife's name is Tamar. But Judah's eldest son by his Canaanite wife is so wicked that God kills him and he dies. The manner in which he died, unrecorded. The manner of his wickedness, unrecorded. But think about this. We've seen some pretty bad wickedness in the book of Genesis, but we have never seen a wickedness that is so evil that God says there's no redemption here. I cannot allow this to go on in my people. Judah's second son does not fare any better. He wants to have intimacy with Tamar, but not produce children. He is using Tamar. And what he does displeases God. Onan has no desire or pension to please God, and he also dies. God has not allowed Judah's, Judah to have children by these wicked sons. Now, Tamar is a member of Judah's house. 
And so Judah promises her that when his youngest son, Shelah, is old enough, Tamar will be his wife. And he sends Tamar back to her father's house. She wears widow's garments. She's off limits to others. And she remains in her father's house. And she holds to her pledge to Judah. In the meantime, Judah's youngest son comes of age. But Judah does not want him to marry Tamar. Why? Because the other wicked sons died which says that Tamar has some type of righteousness that these men died. Perhaps Judah realizes that the whole line through his Canaanite wife is bent on evil, but he doesn't want to lose this son as well. Tamar, in the meantime, hears that Sheila is of age and recognizes Judah's deceit. She realizes that Judah doesn't care about her and is willing to leave her in her father's house, living as a widow for the rest of her life. So Tamar takes the situation into her own hands. Now remember, Tamar has only seen the worst in Jacob's family. She's only seen Ur and Onan, these wicked men who didn't care about pleasing God. She knows something about her father-in-law's nature, so she dresses as a cult prostitute. Now, these cult prostitutes, that means women who belong to um, an idolatrous religion or an idolatrous um, place of worship. Um, in that culture, in those days, in the Canaanite culture, prostitution was part of worship. And I know that's strange, but it was uh, even going into uh, New Testament times. Uh, when Paul was in Corinth, uh, and in some countries still today, prostitution is considered a religious activity. So these religious prostitutes would often come to the sheep shearing parties. So when the sheep uh, had enough wool that they could be shorn and um, the wool collected, there would be a party. And at this party, there would be prostitutes, cult prostitutes. So Judah sees this woman on the side of the road, thinks she's a religious prostitute. He negotiates with her um, that he might have sex with her. And she says, okay, what will you give me? And he says, well, I'll give you a young goat. I don't have it with me, but I can give it to you later. She says, well, I want a pledge from you to show that you will give me this young goat later. So he takes off his signet. Now, the signet was probably either um, metal or a piece of clay that had like his signature or his emblem on it, and it had a cord around it. So he takes this off. It would be like kind of having your credit card. So he takes this off, and he gives her, her his staff also. Now, his staff was very personal. It was... Um, Something that somebody owned it not only, you know, was for their protection, helped them walk, but usually it was carved, intimately carved by the owner, um, designated as their own. It would be a one-of-a-kind, unique to each person who owned it. And so he gives these to Tamar and says, you know, keep these until I return with the young kid. Then he sends his friend, um, after having sex with Tamar, who's disguised, he then, he then goes back home 
And he sends his friend Hiram and says, you know, take this young goat to that cult prostitute. Hiram goes and he looks for the cult, pro uh, the cult prostitute, can't find her anywhere, has no idea what happened to her. And Judas kind of like, whoops, kind of got ripped off. I guess my, my signet and my staff are gone. These were definitely identifying elements for Judah. In time, Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant. And in verse 24 of chapter 38, we hear that he is so incensed that he says, bring her out and let her be burned. Wow, that's quite a judgment to place on somebody else. Now, we know Judah has not been upright. Let's think back. He's the one who wanted to murder his brother Joseph, but instead sold him to the Ishmaelites, lied and deceived his father about Joseph's death, um, lied to Tamar about Sheila and giving his son in a pledge. Obviously, the murderous nature is still in Judah. So Tamar presents Judah's signet cord and staff, verse 25, and says, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. It is at this point that Judah finally comes face to face with Judah. He acknowledges them as his own, and he admits that he has been dishonest. She has been more righteous than I. He did not keep his pledge. He was dishonest with her and sought to cheat her. He was willing to leave her barren and in her father's house. He thought he was committing adultery with a cult prostitute. He's the one who is adulterous. She was claiming her rights as a member of Judah's household. She was not of the house of Jacob. She was doing what was right in the Canaanite culture. He knew better. He was the one who knew better. Tamar has twin boys. Zerah's hand comes out first and is marked with a scarlet thread. And the nurse thinks that he will be the firstborn. But Perez, which means breakthrough, comes out first. And the nurse looking at this child says, how did you break through? And thus his name, breakthrough. This child, breakthrough, is the ancestor of David. Breakthrough, the unexpected patriarch of the lineage of the Messiah. Judah does not have intimacy with Tamar again, but she is brought into the house of Israel as are her sons. Thus, the sanctifying process begins by bringing Judah face to face with the consequences of his own nature. At the forefront of his vision is this, his own deceit the death of his sons because of their wickedness, his adultery, his murderous rage, his culpability. It is in acknowledging these sins that the nature of Judah begins to change and be transformed. It's the beginning, the beginning. Because as I said before, sanctification is a process. And this is where and how it often begins with the realization of what we have done and what is inside of us. And the knowledge that without God's intervention, the natural course, the natural trajectory of our life is 
death. Resident in all of our natures are the ways of men. There are natural tendencies that are in us that God wants to work out of us. Twice in the book of Proverbs, it says that there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end is death. God wants to work this fleshly, human, fallen nature out of us that he might work his glorious, good, loving nature into us. But first, we have to recognize that sin, that sin that has attached itself to us. And we have to want to change. We have to hate not others, but the ungodly in us, not others, but the rebellion in us, not what others have done, but the deadly ways that are in us. Then we need to confess them to God. God, you are righteous. You are more righteous than I am. John 1, 9, 1 John 1, 9, and I'm sure you know this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what happens when we confess. God not only forgives it, says the penalty is no longer there, but he says, I'm going to cleanse you. I want to get rid of that propensity to go back to that place. And then we need to bring that place, that jealousy, that hatred, that lust, that deceit, whatever it is, we need to bring it under the authority of Jesus and ask the Holy Spirit to empower us to be sanctified and used for God's glory. Romans 6, 19 says this, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness to holiness. From this time forward in our study in Genesis, you will see a marked change in Judah. He will volunteer to be under his father's authority. He will volunteer over and over again to be of use to his father. He will seek to do what is best for his father, Jacob. He will no longer insist on his own way or doing what pleases him but rather he will seek to carry out the will of his father. You see that sanctification because the goal of sanctification is to be cleansed that we might be used for God's glory and purposes, that these instruments, our hands or our mouth, or our ears or our eyes might be used for the glory of God, not to fulfill our own way, not to indulge ourselves, but to bless the Lord, to be used for his purposes. This is how God begins to sanctify us. The way to that cleansing is often through self-realization of the ugliness of our own nature and our need of God's holy nature to overpower, overwhelm, and override our hearts. When you come face to face with something ugly in you that you do not like, jealousy, hatred, unforgiveness, meanness pops out of your mouth. Do not get condemned. Do not fret. 
Do not become dismayed. Do not try to justify it. Do not try to excuse it. Do not try to deny it. But learn a lesson from Judah. Own it. Acknowledge it. Repent from it. And bring it under the authority of God. That you might dedicate yourself in your life to the service of your heavenly father. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for my friends. I thank you for these women that are listening, Lord, that are seeking a word from you. Lord, we're in our homes, Lord. We're isolated, but this is such a great time for you to begin to work the sanctification process in us and for us. Lord, we're alone. We're separated. Lord, we've got that much going, but Lord, I pray that you would show us those things in each of us that are displeasing to you that you would help us to acknowledge them, to bring them to the forefront, to confess them, that we might be cleansed from them, Lord, not only forgiven, but cleansed, that we might be more effective, that we might be more under the authority of Jesus Christ, that we might do your will above our own will. Lord, that you would use us as lights in these dark times. So Lord, we pray that you would be with us and minister to each of us in Jesus' name, amen.